0: Alas, the vast majority of our fellows never learn it as they ultimately discover to their eternal undoing. Will that be the case with you, my hearer? And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? Verse 7. Both Thomas Scott and Matthew Henry suppose that it was merely a politic move on the part of Jehoram when he put away the image of Baal that his father had made, that this external reformation was designed to pave the way for obtaining the help of Jehoshaphat, who was a God-fearing, though somewhat vacillating man. The words of Elisha to him in verses 13 and 14 certainly seemed to confirm this view, for the servant of God made it clear that he was not deceived by such a device and addressed him as one who acted the part of a hypocrite. Any student of history is well aware that many religious improvements have been granted by governments simply from what is termed state policy rather than from spiritual convictions or a genuine desire to promote the glory of God. Only the one who looks on the heart knows the real motives behind much that appears fair on the surface. And he said, I will go up, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. 2 Kings 3, 7 it seems strange that such an one as Jehoshaphat was willing to unite with Jehoram in this expedition. For he had been severely rebuked on an earlier occasion for having joined affinity with Ahab. 2 Chronicles 18, 1-3 For Jehu the prophet said unto him, Shouldst thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore his wrath upon thee from before the Lord. 2 Chronicles 19.2 How then is his conduct to be explained on this occasion? No doubt his zeal to heal the breach between the two kingdoms had much to do with it. For 2 Chronicles 18.1-3 intimates he was anxious to promote a better spirit between Judah and Israel. Moreover, the Moabites were a common enemy, for we learn from Second Chronicles 20, verse 1, that at a later date the Moabites, accompanied by others, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. But it is most charitable to conclude that Jehoshaphat Was deceived by Jehoram's reformation. Yet we should mark the absence of his seeking directions from the Lord on this occasion. Second, its urgency. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. And there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Second Kings 3, 8-10 to We must abbreviate our remarks. Note that Jehoram was quite willing for the king of Judah to take the lead and that He made his plans without seeking counsel of God. The course he took was obviously meant to secure the aid of the Edomites, but by going so far into the wilderness, they met with a desert wherein was no water. Thus the three kings and their forces were in imminent danger of perishing. This struck terror into the heart of Jehoram, and at once his guilty conscience smote it. Unbelievers know sufficient of the truth to condemn them. The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. Proverbs 19.3 What an illustration of that is furnished by the words of Jehoram on this occasion. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Verses 11 and 12. Here we see the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous in time of dire calamity. The one is tormented with a guilty conscience and thinks only of the Lord's wrath. The other has hope in His mercy. In those days the prophet was the divine mouthpiece. So for one the king of Judah made inquiry, and not in vain. It is blessed to observe that As the Lord takes note of and registers the sins of the reprobate, so he observes the deeds of his elect, placing on record here the humble service which Elisha had rendered to Elijah. Not even a cup of water given to one of his little ones shall pass unnoticed and unrewarded. Appropriately was Elisha termed the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, Second Kings 13, 14, their true defense in the hour of danger. And to him did the three kings turn in their urgent need. Third, it's discrimination. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. Verse 13. Mark both the dignity and fidelity of God's servant. So far from feeling flattered because the king of Israel consulted him, he deemed himself insulted and hesitated not to let him know he discerned his true character. It reminds us of the Lord's words through Ezekiel. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Ezekiel fourteen three. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hands of Moab, as much as to say, Do not disdain me, Our case is desperate. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. Verse 14. Little do the unrighteous realize how much they owe under God to the presence of the righteous in their midst. As soon as Lot was removed from Sodom, that city was destroyed. Fourth, its requirement. But now bring me a minstrel. 2 Kings 3.15 In view of 1 Samuel 16.23, Thomas Scott and Matthew Henry conclude that his interview with Jehoram had perturbed Elisha's mind, and and that soothing music was a means to compose his spirit, that he might be prepared to receive the Lord's mind. Possibly they are correct. Yet we believe there is another and more important reason in the light of such passages as Sing unto the Lord with the harp and the voice of a psalm, Psalm 98, 5, and Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. First Chronicles 25.3 and compare verse 1. We consider that Elisha was here showing regard for and rendering submission to the order established by God. The Hebrew word for menstrual signifies one who plays on a stringed instrument as an accompaniment to the song he sang. Thus it was to honor God and instruct these kings Elisha sent for the minstrel. And it came to pass, when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord, compare Ezekiel 1, 3 and 3, came upon him. The Lord ever honors those who honor him. Fifth, it's testing. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, Yet that valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, Both ye and your cattle and your beasts. 16 and 17. A pretty severe test was this when all outward sign of fulfillment was withheld. It was a trial of their faith and obedience and entailed a considerable amount of hard work. Had they treated the prophet's prediction with derision, they would have scorned to go to so much trouble. It was somewhat like the order Christ gave unto his apostles as he bade them make the multitudes sit down when there was nothing commensurate in sight to feed so vast a company, only a few loaves and fishes. The sequel shows they heeded Elisha and made due preparation for the promised supply of water. As Matthew Henry says, they that expect God's blessings must prepare room for them." Unquote. Sixth, Its Meaning The very number of this miracle helps us to apprehend its significance. It was the fourth of the series, and in the language of Scripture numerics it stands for the earth. Compare the four seasons and the four points of the compass, and so forth. What we have in this miracle is one of the Old Testament foreshadowments that the Gospel was not to be confined to Palestine, but would yet be sent forth throughout the earth. Prior to His death, Christ bade His apostles. Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel Matthew ten five and six and compare John four nine. But after his resurrection he said Go ye therefore and teach all nations Matthew twenty eight nineteen but there is more here. Salvation is of the Jews, John 4:22, and their debtors, we Gentiles are, Romans 15:26 and 27. Strikingly is this typified here, for it was solely for the sake of the presence of Jehoshaphat, this miracle was wrought, and that the water of life was made available for the Samaritans and the Edomites. Thus it is a picture of the minister of the gospel engaged in missionary activities that is here set forth. Seventh, its timing. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered up, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Verse 20, this hour was chosen by the Lord for the performing of this miracle to intimate to the whole company that their deliverance was vouchsafed on the ground of the sacrifices offered and the worship rendered in the temple in Jerusalem. It was at the same significant hour that Elijah had made his effectual prayer on Mount Carmel. First Kings. when another notable miracle was wrought. So, too, it was at the hour of the evening oblation that a signal blessing was granted unto Daniel. 9.21, typically it teaches us that it is through the merits of the sacrifice of Christ that the life-sustaining gospel of God now flows forth unto the Gentiles. Chapter 8 Fifth Miracle In creation we are surrounded with both that which is useful and that which is ornamental. The earth produces a wealth of lovely flowers as well as grain and vegetables for our diet. The Creator has graciously provided things which charm our eyes and ears as well as supply our bodies with food and raiment. The same feature marks God's Word. The Scriptures contain something more than doctrine and precept. There are wonderful types which display the wisdom of their author and delight those who are able to trace the merging of the shadow into the substance. And there are mysterious prophecies which demonstrate the foreknowledge of their giver, and minister pleasure to those granted the privilege of beholding their fulfillment. These types and prophecies form part of the internal evidence which the Bible furnishes of its divine inspiration. For they give proof of a wisdom which immeasurably transcends that of the wisest of mortals. Nevertheless, one has to turn unto the doctrinal and preceptive portions of Holy Writ in order to learn the way of salvation and the nature of that walk which is pleasing to God. In our earlier writings, We devoted considerable attention to the types and prophecies, but for the last decade we have concentrated chiefly upon the practical side of the truth. Observation taught us that many of those who were keenly interested in Bible reading on some part of the tabernacle or an attempt to explain some of the predictions of Daniel appeared quite bored when we preached upon Christian duty or deportment, yet they certainly needed the latter, for they were quite deficient therein. A glorious sunset is an exquisite sight, but it would supply no nourishment to one that was starving. The perfumes of a garden may delight the senses, but they would be a poor substitute for a good breakfast, To a growing child. Only after the soul has fed upon the doctrine of Scripture and put into practice its precepts is it ready to enjoy the beauties of the types and explanations of the mysteries of prophecy. This change of emphasis in our writings has lost us hundreds of readers, yet. If we could relive the past fifteen years, we would follow the same course. The solemn days through which we are passing demand as never before that first things be put first. There are plenty of writers who cater to those who read for intellectual entertainment. Our longing is to minister unto those who yearn for a closer walk with God. What would be thought of a farmer who, in the spring, wasted his time in the woods listening to the music of the feathered songsters, while his fields were allowed to remain unplowed and unsown? Would it not be equally wrong if we dwelt almost entirely on the typical significance of the miracles of Elisha, while ignoring the simpler and practical lessons they contained for our hearts and lives? Balance is needed here as everywhere, and if we devote more space than usual on this occasion to the spiritual meaning of the miracle before us, and similarly in the Dagon chapters, it will not be because we have made or shall make a practice of so doing. First, its connection. Matthew Henry said, Great service had Elisha done in the foregoing chapter for the three kings. To his prayers and prophecies they owed their lives in triumph. One would have expected that the next chapter should have told us what honors and dignities were conferred on Elisha for this. That he should have been immediately preferred at court and made prime minister of state that Jehoshaphat should have taken him home with him and advanced him in the kingdom. No, the wise man delivered the army, but no man remembered the wise man. Ecclesiastes 9.15 Or, if he had preferment offered him, he declined it. He preferred the honor of doing good in the schools of the prophets, before that of being great in the courts of kings. God magnified him, and that sufficed him, magnified him indeed, for we have him here employed in working no less than five miracles. End of quote. He who has, by grace, the heart of a true servant of Christ, would not, if he could, Exchanged places with the monarch on his throne, or the millionaire with all his luxuries. Second, its beneficiary. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant my husband is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come. To take unto him my two sons to be bondmen, 2 Kings 4, 1. The one for whom this miracle was wrought was a woman, the weaker vessel, 1 Peter 3, 7. She was a widow, a figure of desolation. How doth a city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? Lamentations one one contrast the proud boast of corrupt Babylon I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Revelation eighteen seven Not only was she bereft of her husband, but she was left destitute, in debt and without the means of discharging it. A more pitiable and woeful object could scarcely be conceived. In her sad plight, she betook herself to the servant of Jehovah and made known unto him her dire situation. Her husband may have died while Elisha was absent with the kings in their expedition against the Moabites, and thus he be unacquainted with her troubles. Third, its urgency. The situation confronting this poor widow was indeed a drastic one. Her human provider and protector had been removed by the hand of death. She had been left in debt and had not the wherewithal to discharge it, a burden that would weigh heavily on a conscientious soul and now she was in immediate danger of having her two sons seized and taken from her by the creditor to serve as bondman to him. Observe that in the opening words of Second Kings 4, it is not said, Now there came a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, but there cried a certain woman, which indicates the pressure of her grief and the earnestness of her appeal unto the prophet. Sometimes God permits His people to be brought very low in their circumstances, nor is this always by way of chastisement because of their falling. We do not think that such was the case here. The Lord is pleased to bring some to the end of their own resources, that his delivering hand may be the more plainly seen acting on their behalf. One of the outstanding characteristics of the regenerate is that they are given honest hearts. Luke 8.15 And therefore is it their careful endeavor to provide things honest in the sight of all men and to owe no man anything. Romans twelve. 17 and 13.8. They are careful to live within their income and not to order an article unless they can pay for it. It is because so many hypocrites under the cloak of a Christian profession have been so dishonest in financial matters and so unscrupulous in trade that reproach has so often been brought upon the churches. Yet, in certain exceptional cases, even the most swiftly and upright may run into debt. It was so here the deceased husband of this widow was a man who did fear the lord, second Kings Four one. Nevertheless, he left his widow in such destitution that she was unable to meet the claims of her creditor. There has been considerable speculation by the commentators as to the cause of this unhappy situation, most of which this writer finds himself quite unable to approve. What then is his own explanation? In seeking the answer to this question, three things need to be borne in mind. First, as we pointed out in our introduction to the life of Elijah series, the prophet was an abnormality. That is, there was no place for him, no need of him in the religious life of Israel during ordinary times. It was only in seasons of serious declension or apostasy that he appears on the scene. Thus, No stated maintenance was provided for him as it was for the priests and Levites under the law. Consequently, the prophet was dependent upon the gifts of the pious or the productions of his own manual labors, and judging from the brief records of Scripture, one gathers the impression that most of them enjoyed little more than the barest necessities of life. Second, for many years past, Ahab and Jezebel had been in power, and not only were the pious persecuted, but the prophets went in danger of their lives. 1 Kings 18.4 Third, it seems likely to us that this particular prophet obtained his subsistence from the oil obtained from an olive grove and that probably there had been a failure of the crop during the past year or two. Note how readily the widow obtained from her neighbors not a few empty vessels. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Possibly the prophet was himself momentarily nonplussed, conscious of his own helplessness. Possibly his question was designed to emphasize the gravity of the situation. It is beyond my power to extricate you. More likely it was to make her look above him. I too am only human. Or again, it may have been to test her. Are you willing to follow my instructions? Instead of waiting for her reply, the prophet at once proceeded to ask a second question. Tell me, what hast thou in the house? Second Kings 4, two. Perhaps this was intended to press upon the widow the seriousness of her problem. For the prophet must have known that she possessed little or nothing, or why should she have sought unto him? Or in the light of her answer, its force may have been an admonition not to despise small mercies. Her, not anything save a pot of oil, reminds of Andrew's, but what are these amongst so many? John 6 9. Ah, do not we often reason similarly? Fourth, its test. Then he said, Go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. Verse 3. It was a test both of her faith and her obedience. To carnal reason, it would appear that the prophet was only mocking her, for Of what possible service could a lot of empty vessels be to her? But if her trust was in the Lord, then she would be willing to submit herself unto and comply with His word through His servant. And are not His thoughts and ways ever the opposite of ours? Was it not so when He overthrew the Midianites? What a word was that unto Gideon. The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Judges 7.2 And in consequence, his army was reduced from over 22,000 to a mere 300. Verses 3-7 to seven. And when that little company went forth, it was with trumpets and empty pitchers and lamps inside the pitchers in their hands. Verse 16 all oh, my hearer, we have to come before the Lord as empty vessels, emptied of our self-sufficiency, if we are to experience His wandering working power. Fifth its requirement. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Second Kings 4.4. 4. This was to avoid ostentation. Her neighbors were not in the secret, nor should they be permitted to witness the Lord's gracious dealings with her, It reminds us of Christ's raising of the daughter of Jairus. When they arrived at the house it was filled with a skeptical and scoffing company, and the Savior put them all out Mark 5:40 ere he went in and performed the miracle. The same principle obtains today in connection with the operations of divine grace. The world is totally ignorant of this mystery, God's filling of empty vessels. Thomas Scott writes, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. John 14.17 Yes, she must shut to the door, that in retirement she and her sons might the more leisurely ponder and adore the goodness of the Lord. Unquote. Sixth, its means. This was the pot of oil which appeared to be so utterly inadequate to meet the demands of the widow's creditor. It was so in itself. But under the blessing of God, it proved amply sufficient. The five barley loaves and the two small fishes, John 6, 9, seemed quite useless for feeding a vast multitude with. But in the hands of the Lord, they furnished as much as they would. And even when they were filled, there remained a surplus of twelve baskets full. Ah! It is the little things which God is pleased to use. A pebble from the brook slung by faith is sufficient to overthrow the Philistine giant. A little cloud was enough to produce a great rain. 1 Kings 18, 44 and 45 A little maid was used as a missionary in Syria. Second Kings 5.2 A little child was employed by Christ to teach His disciples humility. Matthew 18.2 A little strength supplied by the Spirit enables us to keep Christ's Word and not deny His name. Revelation 3.8 Oh, to be little in our own sight, 1 Samuel 15.17 It is blessed to see this widow did not despise the means, but promptly obeyed the prophet's instructions, her faith laying hold of the clearly implied promise in the all those vessels. Verse 4. Seventh, its significance. In this miracle, We have a most blessed, striking, and remarkable typical picture of the grand truth of redemption, a subject which is, we fear, rather hazy in the minds even of many Christians. The gospel is preached so superficially today, its very glories are so lost in generalizations that few have more than the vaguest idea of its component parts. Redemption is now commonly confused with atonement. The two are quite distinct, one being an effect of the other. The sacrifice which Christ offered unto divine holiness and justice was that He might bring us to God. First Peter 3.18 A comprehensive expression covering the whole of our salvation both in the removal of all hindrances and in the bestowal of all requisites. In order to bring us to God, it was necessary that all enmity between them should be removed. That is reconciliation. That the guilt of their transgression should be cancelled. That is remission of sins. That they should be delivered from all bondage. That is redemption. That they should be made both experimentally and legally righteous. That is regeneration and justification. Redemption then is one of the grand effects or results of the atonement. The satisfaction which Christ rendered unto the law. God's elect are debtors to the law for they have broken it and they are prisoners to his justice for they are by nature the children of wrath even as others. Ephesians 2.3 And our deliverance or salvation is not a mere manumission without price, that is, a simple discharge by an act of clemency without an adequate compensation being made. No, while it is true, our redemption is of grace and effected by sovereign power, yet it is so because a ransom is offered, a price paid, in every way equivalent to the discharge secured. In the words, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. Hosea 13.14 We are taught that the latter is the consequence of the former. Ransom is the paying of the price required. Redemption is the setting free of those ransomed. And this deliverance is by the exercise of divine power, not accepting deliverance. Hebrews 11.35 The Greek word deliverance here is commonly rendered redemption. They refuse to accept it from their afflictions on the dishonorable terms, apostasy, demanded by their persecutors. Redemption necessarily presupposes previous possession. It denotes the restoration of something which has been lost, and that, by the paying of a price. Hence we find Christ saying by the spirit of prophecy, I restored that which I took not away. Psalm 69.4 This is strikingly illustrated in the history of Israel, who on the farther shores of the Red Sea sang, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people of which thou hast redeemed. Exodus 15.13 First, in the book of Genesis, we see the descendants of Abraham sojourning in the land of Canaan. Later, we see the chosen race in cruel servitude, in bondage to the Egyptians, groaning amid the brick kilns under the whip of the taskmasters. Then the ransom was provided in the blood of the Paschal Lamb, following which the Lord by His mighty hand brought them out of serfdom and brought them into the promised inheritance. That is a complete picture of redemption. There are many who perceive that Christians were a people in bondage, lost to God, but recovered and restored to Him, yet who failed to perceive they belonged to the Lord before Christ freed them. The elect belonged to Christ long before He shed His blood to ransom them, for they were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and made over to Him as the Father's love gift, John 17, 9. But they too fell and died in Adam, And therefore did he come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ purchased the church of God with his own blood. Acts 28. And therefore does the Father say to him, By the blood of thy covenant I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where is no water. Zechariah 9.11 He has a legal right to them. There is no unavailing redemption. All whom Christ purchased or ransomed shall be redeemed, that is, delivered from captivity, set free from sin. Judicially, they are so now. Experimentally, too, in part, John 8.36, but perfectly so only when glorified. Hence, the future aspect in Luke 21.28 and Romans 8.23. Now observe how all the leading features of redemption are typically brought out in Second Kings 4. One, the object of it is a widow. She had not always been thus. Formerly, she had been married to one who feared the Lord. But death had severed that happy bond and left her desolate and destitute, apt figure of God's elect, originally in union with him, and then, through the fall, alienated from him. Ephesians 4.18 Two, her creditor was enforcing his demands, had actually come to seize her sons to be bondmen. The Hebrew word rendered creditor in Second Kings 4.1 signifies one who exacteth what is justly due to him, and is so translated in Job 11.6. It looks back to, And if thy brother that dwelleth with thee be waxen poor, and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant. But as a hired servant, as a sojourner, he shall be with thee and shall serve thee unto the year of Jubilee. Leviticus twenty five, thirty nine and forty. Our Lord had reference to this practice in his parable of Matthew eighteen, twenty three to twenty five. Thus the creditor of Second Kings four 1, who showed no mercy to the poor widow, is a figure of the stern and unrelenting law. 3. As the widow was quite unable to pay her creditor, so we are utterly incompetent to satisfy the demands of the law or effect our own redemption. 4. She, like us, was shut up to the mere favor of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus Romans 3:24 and that is exactly what we should expect to find in this miracle for five is the number of grace see Genesis 43:34 45:22 Exodus 13:18 margin 1 Corinthians 14 nineteen, and so forth. Hence to the means used, the oil multiplied, figure of the grace of God. Psalm twenty three five, Isaiah sixty one, three, superabounding. Five yet it was a grace that wrought through righteousness, Romans five twenty one, for it obtained the freedom of the widow's sons by meeting the full due of her creditor. 6. Both aspects of redemption are seen here.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N, Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog, and remember that John Calvin